Good morning, church. Would you please turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 27. We have been away from this study for a week while we celebrated Easter. So let me remind you where we are. The Israelites have been brought out of Egypt. They have been brought up to the edge of the Red Sea. God miraculously parted the waters. He brought them across on dry land. In the first part of chapter 15, they uh, sang the song of Moses. They sang this incredible, thankful hymn. Every one of them sang it. The men, the women, the children by tradition sang it. But now they suffer from an illness that we could call redemptive amnesia. It's a pathology. It's a pathology because it's a repeated pattern. You, we just remind you of what, we, what we've experienced with the Israelites already back in Egypt when uh, things got more difficult for them. Remember, they had prayed for 400 years for a deliverer. Moses finally shows up, and then things get more difficult. Uh, Pharaoh requires them to make bricks without straw, and then they turn on Moses, and they say, things were so much easier for us before you got here. And then uh, God delivers them. He brings them out. He brings them up to the edge of the Red Sea, miraculously delivers them from Egypt, gives them jewelry, gives them, gives them clothing, takes them up to the walls of the Red Sea, and as soon as they see the Egyptian charioteers coming, they complain, take us back to Egypt. Were there not enough graves there for us to die in? And now God has taken them across the, across the Red Sea. He's delivered them. They've walked on dry ground. And he says to them, or they say to, to Moses, without water, they start grumbling that they've already forgotten this miraculous deliverance from the Red Sea, redemptive amnesia. It's a terrible, terrible illness, isn't it? It's terrible to look in the mirror. It's terrible to look at myself in this passage. It's terrible for us to look at ourselves as people who so easily forget the redemption a gracious God provides for us. But the cure, as is the case with the gospel, the cure is surprising. I want you to look at it with me, beginning in verse 22, uh, and be prepared to meet with Jesus in this passage from Exodus chapter 15. <clears throat> Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them 
if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you kindly and generously send your Holy Spirit to awaken these words in our hearts, this promise that you are our healer. We need you desperately, Lord Jesus. Come, lay your hands on us, and heal us from every disease, especially the disease of redemption amnesia. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for His sake and God's people said together, Amen. J.R.R. Tolkien was a friend of C.S. Lewis's. He wrote a a three-volume fantasy tale called The Lord of the Rings. And for Tolkien, fantasy was not make-believe. Fantasy was his way of making the unseen reality of God's control of the universe and his, his story of redemption, making it, making it imaginable for us, making it understandable. The basic story is that it's a conflict between good and evil. Uh, Evil is represented by the dark lord Sauron, and the good king is named Aragorn. And Aragorn has been denied the throne. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And the the story is is a, a lot of battling and a lot of suffering, but finally Aragorn defeats Lord Sauron, the good king, the only one who is the rightful heir to the throne, defeats the evil Sauron. But even after he defeats them, there remain a number of skirmishes to be fought before he ascends to the throne, and it is obvious to the whole kingdom that he is the king. Sounds familiar already, doesn't it? But there's a scene uh, as in, in Aragorn's, Aragorn's approach to the throne, there's a scene in which he goes into a village under disguise, and he is there because there, there are a number of hospitals, uh, houses of healing. And he, he has friends in those hospitals who are suffering from their wounds, suffered in battle because they've been fighting for him. And Aragorn goes into each of those hospitals and in disguise goes from bed to bed to bed laying hands on his friends and healing them one by one. Finally, one of the attendants remembered a piece of ancient verse, a prophecy from the distant past. 
The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be made known. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And so shall the rightful king be made known. Aragorn was proven to be the king. Not merely because of his power in battle, but because his hands were the hands of a merciful healer. The Lord identifies himself in our passage, verse 26, as the healer. Yahweh, the Lord, is your healer. There's a lot of healing that occurs in the Bible. There's a lot of healing that occurs in the Old Testament. Sixty times this word Rapha, Yahweh Rapha. That word Rapha is used 60 times or more in the Old Testament. It usually describes the healing of a human being and usually at the hand of God. But it's not just, it's not just physical healing. Some experts say the word should be translated doctor, but that's that's insufficient because that healing is descriptive of, of what happens, what God does for bodies and what God does for, for people's panic and even what He does, what is done for dead bodies. The embalming work of the Egyptians was described as healing. It's what is done for institutions which are systemically corrupt or for a fallen creation. Here the, the waters of Merah are healed. A couple of other times in Scripture too, waters are said to be healed by God. God is a healer. He's the complete healer, the total healer. The, this is the kind of healer we need, isn't it? This is, the, this is the healer we need. We need a healer for our physical deprivation. We need one to heal us from our spiritual ingratitude. We need one to heal us from our volitional rebellion. And, and our response, our proper response to each of those, those promises of healing from the Lord, should we turn to Him, is, 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 uh, is described for us. It's... it's uh, it's prescribed for us in our text, which forms the basis for our, initi our, our initiative for prayer, the 714 movement, where we're asking uh, the congregation to pray at 714 a.m. or p.m. And, 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 and the writer of Chronicles says, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. For our physical deprivation, God calls us to humble ourselves. For our spiritual ingratitude, He calls us to pray. And for our volitional rebellion, He calls us to turn from our wicked ways. Look with me, first of all, in verses 22 and 23. Here is our need for physical deprivation. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness or wandered in the desert or made their way in the desert toward the promised land and for three days they could not find water. 
The text doesn't need to tell us that they were thirsty. We know that when, with three days without water makes them desperately in need of hydration. God says, God says in Psalm 103 that He remembers that we are dust. He has compassion on us. What's he saying in that passage? It says that God made us, our creator, scooped Adam out of the ground. He made him from the dust, which means that we are permanently and vulnerably dependent upon this creation to live. We need the sun for warmth. We need, we need starches and electrolytes and water for nutrition. We need the balance of the gases in the universe for breathing. And if any of those supply lines is interrupted for very long, we could die. We are permanently, vulnerably dependent on the creation and thus our Creator for life. But we seldom think about that until one of those supply lines is interrupted. And, and at times, the Father has to deprive us because He's a good Father. He has to deprive us at times in order to turn us back to Him in humility. Just like a good parent at times has to deprive a child of, of a toy or playtime or a car or in extreme cases even the roof over his head or her head, not as an act of cruelty, but in order to remind the child that these are gifts of generosity and not entitlements. The Father says, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, that He made the children of Israel hungry so that He could feed them, so that they would realize that their food life and breath and everything else comes from the Lord. What must we do to, to experience this, this healing for our physical need? We must humble ourselves and recognize our dependence on a good, good Father. That He's the one from whom all blessings flow, that He is the one in whom there is no shadow of turning, that He is the Father of lights and the giver of every good gift. Brothers and sisters, let us use this time in this pandemic, in this crisis, this time of grief and anxiety, let us let God do His work in us to draw us back to His knee, back into his lap, into his bosom to say, my dear Father, thank you for every good and perfect gift. I humble myself in dependence on you. The second need we have for healing is a spiritual need. We, we are in need of spiritual healing from the disease of ingratitude. Look at verses 23 to 25. They came to Marah, after, right after they had been delivered from, 
from uh, the Red Sea. They could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah, which means which means bitter. Now, they were probably already in a bad mood because <clears throat> verse 22 should probably be translated like this. Then Moses forced Israel, or our text does say made Israel set out from the, the Red Sea. He, he, had to, he had to get them going. He had to force them to move on. They wanted to, to stay in their seaside their seaside location because uh, they, they, they remembered their victory. They, they remembered those dead bodies of the Egyptians swept up on the shore. It would have been sweet revenge for them. But Moses said, it's time to go. We've got to keep on going. They're in a bad mood. And so they come there three days without water. Now they come to this place and it promises to provide all the water they need, but it's a mirage of sorts because the water's not just bitter. It's not that it just doesn't taste good. It's poisonous. So they grumble. They don't remember the redemption that has already been provided for them. Their default is not, oh Lord, you've always supplied our need and we're grateful for that. So we know that you'll supply this need. Please help us. No, their default is to grumble. And grumble is not just quiet complaining this is this is serious they they are they're in a in a state of mutiny against god's leader and this this is the first time it's mentioned in in exodus but it's not the last time this is this is part of their pathology it'll be mentioned again in 15 or it's mentioned in 15 it'll be mentioned in 16 17 numbers 14 16 17 Joshua 9 this same word they grumbled they were ready to stone they were ready to kill God's representative because they didn't have water maybe that's where you are too. It's where I can be at times. I confess to you, brothers and sisters, it's where I can be at times. My complaint is only as far away as the next disappointment. And I'm quick to forget that God has always supplied my need, that He's never allowed the righteous to beg for bread. What's our cure? The cure is to pray. That's what Moses does on their behalf. Now, you know, humbling should occur in this way, leading to this prayer, is we're, we're humbled before, before our circumstances and it, it begins to turn us to the Lord. It should be, this is what we should, here's what we tend to do. We tend to think, oh, how could God do such a thing? How could God let me suffer like this? Why is He allowing this to happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is the problem of suffering. John Gerstner, a theologian of the past, wrote a little book once called The Problem of Pleasure. Not the problem of suffering, the problem of pleasure. He says, why would we not expect suffering in view of our rebellion, in view of our ingratitude? Why would we not expect suffering? The problem really is why would there ever be pleasure? Why does every, anything ever go right with us? Why is God ever gracious to us? That should humble us, and that humility should lead us to gratitude, and that gratitude should lead us to prayer. 
That's what Moses did. Moses, standing in the gap as the mediator for God's people, you notice, he cries to the Lord. This is not a flippant prayer, not an arrow prayer. This is not a prayer that he, that he sighs as he's relaxing on his couch. He cried to the Lord. This is the cry of a child who, who, who thinks that her mother is a long way off. Moses cries to the Lord. Spurgeon said, there's nothing that gets the attention of God like tears. A liquid petition, he says, is distilled in the heart. It moistens the eyes and trickles down the cheek and conquers the heart of God. This is why one reason we prefer to kneel. I'm so glad we can, we can kneel in this interim period because Kneeling bends our bodies and, and forces us to, to humble ourselves and recognize that we owe everything to God. It, it creates a posture of gratitude. Augustine said, the mental posture attained by kneeling in prayer calms and purifies the soul and makes it ready to receive the gifts that God is eager to pour into it. I want you to notice something else that happens. When Moses turns and cries to the Lord, the Lord shows him. You see that in verse 25? He cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. That verb translated showed is the verbal form of the noun Torah, the law or teaching. So when Moses stopped and he prayed to the Lord, the Lord not only heard him, he answered, ultimately he answered with water, but he answered with guidance. Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go to the, to the shore and I want you to get a log from a tree planted by the streams of water and take that tree and throw it into the water and it will bear fruit in its season it will make the waters pure I did weave in Psalm 1 there because Moses is represented by that stick as he is represented by a staff and as, as that stick responds to Moses hand when he dipped the stip, stick forward and the and the Red Sea parted he, he showed what happens when, when we are compliant with God's will, when, when we obey His teaching. And when He threw that stick into the water, that stick obeyed, and the water became pure. It's humanizing to be grateful and to live in dependence on the Lord, which is the third point. We need healing not only from our physical deprivation and our spiritual ingratitude, but also our volitional rebellion. Look at verses 26 and 27. God established a statute, a rule. Now that sounds more harsh than, than perhaps it should be. It's, he's, the Lord taught them. And He said, listen, 
Here's the lesson. If you diligently listen to my voice and do what is right in my eyes, give ear to my commandments, keep my statutes, I'll put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians because I'm the Lord, your healer. It's not because I need you to obey me for my, for my ego's sake. I, I want you to obey me because then life will go well with you. We yield ourselves to him. Like that stick yielded, was yielded to Moses' hand. And healing came. Life goes better when we obey the Lord. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. But it's a sweet relationship when we obey Him. So what do you need to do? Well, if you have never been saved, the first thing you must do is, is be converted. You must be born again. You must, you must recognize that, that you are in desperate need of His righteousness. You, you must turn to Him and ask Him for His righteousness. And He will make you righteous. He will justify you. That's what we call justification. But what we have described in this text is, is the life of sanctification. This is the process of God making us what we are supposed to be. is conforming us to the life of Jesus. You say, I'm so... I'm so behind on this already. There's no, ch- there's no chance for me. I'm such a rebel. I'm so ungrateful. I'm so proud. Yes, that's why Jesus not only died on the cross for you. It's why he lived for three years, for 33 years in your place. It's why he specifically allowed himself to be led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness so that he could face every category of temptation and defeat them for your and my sake. When, he, when the devil tempted him to turn the rocks into bread, that was the lust of the eyes. That was the, that was the temptation that can occur during times of physical deprivation. And, and Jesus said, I, man doesn't live by bread alone. I know that my Father will supply my needs. He was humbly dependent for our sake on the Father's supply. And then the devil said, you don't know that the Father loves you. Why don't you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and and force his angels to come pick you up and then force him to prove to you his love. That's the lust of the flesh. That is what I can't, I'm going to force God to prove his love for me. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And Jesus said, in effect, I don't need to do that. I don't need to tempt the Lord. He's already told me that he loves me. He defeated the lust of the flesh on our behalf. That, that, that forgetfulness, that, that ingratitude. And then he said, uh, Jesus, you don't need to go through all this suffering. Why don't you bow down to me and I'll, I'll cause all the kingdoms of the earth to submit to you. That's the pride of life. A shortcut around suffering. Volitional rebellion. Jesus said, I don't worship anybody but the Lord, the true Lord our God. He defeated the pride of life for us. 
And now the process of sanctification is the Holy Spirit making us who we already are in Christ. He continually turns your heart back to Him. And here's the surprise of the text in verse 27. That the Lord, even after this gross rebellion, ingratitude, pride, He takes them on. You would think He would rub their noses in it. He would make them suffer a little while longer. But instead, He takes them to Elam. He takes them to a place that has 12 springs of, of sweet water and 70 palm trees. It's a place of abundance. This is the way our Father is. That from a period of rebellion, when He recaptures our hearts, He blesses us with more of His grace. And it's that kindness that should lead us to repentance. He's a healer, a wounded healer. I read some time ago the story of Samuel Weinstein, who at the time was chairman of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. And Dr. Weinstein went with a, a charitable organization to El Salvador to do cardiac surgery on, on, on kids who were in emergent conditions. And one of his patients was a little eight-year-old boy named uh, Francisco Caldalon Anthony Fernandez. Francisco's case was, was especially dire. The first 12 hours of his open-heart surgery went, went pretty well, and then, and then he developed a bleed, and, and they couldn't keep up with, with the bleeding. They didn't have enough, uh, enough blood supply. They told Dr. Weinstein, he's not going to make it. We don't have enough blood to supply for him. Plus, he has a rare blood type of B negative. Only 2% of the population have it. Dr. Weinstein stepped away from the operating table, went over in the corner of the, of the surgery ward, makeshift surgery ward, scrubbed his forearm and drew a pint of his own blood. They ate a Pop-Tart and ate, drank some water. Went back to the operating table. And as he watched his own blood circulating through little Francisco's chest, he finished the surgery. Francisco lived. Your Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus was in the Old Testament saving these people. The Lord Jesus was the one being lifted up in the form of the bronze serpent. And, and God said, if you just look to that bronze serpent, you will be healed. The Lord Jesus is the one who was lifted up on the cross in the New Testament. And it's from His blood that we find our healing. His blood drops healing into our wounds of physical deprivation and spiritual ingratitude and volitional rebellion. Yahweh Rapha is your healer. Look to Him. Look to Him and live. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask that You would take our 
head in your hands and turn our faces upward to look at you, to look to you for our healing, healing from our pride, healing from our ingratitude, healing from our rebellion. Oh, Lord, use this crisis to accomplish beautiful things for your mercy and in turn make us wounded healers for this world. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said together, amen.